0: In Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll look at the meaning of the phrase, the fullness of time, and how the birth of Jesus took place at just the right time in history Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Knotgrass, a production of Knotgrass History. As Mary and Joseph made the seventy plus mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem many thoughts must have crowded their minds. First was the difficulty of their situation, with Mary almost at full term in her miraculous pregnancy. Then perhaps came wonder at how the order by a pagan emperor to report to Joseph's ancestral hometown was going to play a part in their lives and the lives of Israel. And although they probably couldn't grasp the entire meaning of it, Perhaps they understood that they were playing a central part in God's eternal plan for salvation and redemption to be offered to the world. Many paths of history came together in their lives and in that special time and place. What God accomplished in that fullness of time is truly a remarkable story. Israel was God's chosen people. About 2000 B.C., God had called Abram, whom he renamed Abraham, to go to a place that God would show him. Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. Israel became slaves in Egypt. Then, around 1400 B.C., God called Moses to lead Israel out of slavery. During their journey to the Promised Land, Israel entered into the covenant relationship that God offered them at Mount Sinai. From then on, Israel lived with the realization, to greater or lesser degrees, that God had chosen them to be his special people out of all the nations on the earth. It was God's plan that eventually one special person from Israel, God's anointed one, would rise up to bring to God all people from every nation who would believe this special one is the Son of God. The word for anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christ. But Israel was not faithful to God's calling. The nation divided after the time of Solomon, and idolatry was rampant in Israel for centuries. In 722 BC, the pagan nation of Assyria took the northern part into captivity, never to return. The pagan nation of Babylon took the southern part, whom we know as the Jews, into captivity around 600 B.C. Some of the Jews eventually returned to their homeland, chastened by the exile experience. But they were still under the thumb of the Babylonians. Then later, they were under the thumb of the Persians. Then later still, they were under the thumb of the Greeks, who were led by Alexander the Great, whose vast empire included the area we now call Palestine. As you can see, turmoil in the Middle East is nothing new. When Alexander died in 323 BC, four of his generals divided up his empire. One of the successors to these rulers was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who wanted to promote Greek culture and religion and who hated the Jews. He stripped the temple in Jerusalem of its furnishings and treasures, then devoted the temple to heathen worship by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He also forced the Jews to set up shrines to heathen gods in their hometowns. Hatred of the Jewish people is nothing new either. After a while, the Jews got tired of being under the thumb of other rulers, especially pagan rulers, especially since they believed that they were the chosen people of the one true God. So in 168 B.C., a group of Jews called the Maccabeans revolted. They regained control of their homeland, restored the temple in 165 B.C., and rededicated it to the worship of God, an event that Jews remember each year in the festival of Hanukkah. This rule of the Jews by the Jews themselves was a breath of fresh air after centuries of subjugation by foreign powers. It gave the Jews a taste of freedom and power they had not known since the days of Solomon. But the Maccabeans faltered and splintered. The new international power known as Rome took control of the area in 64 B.C., and the Jews' freedom was gone again. But their hopes and dreams of freedom did not die. They interpreted passages in Scripture to say that the longed-for Messiah would rise up to bring about the defeat of the Romans and restore power and freedom to Israel. As biblical scholar T.W. Manson put it, their longing for the Messiah was, "...a burning conviction held with fanatical zeal, shaped under the pressure of tyranny and persecution, and inspired by deep religious faith." In a world that worshipped many gods, the Jews worshipped the one true God, and the Jews were looking for the Messiah. They weren't clear on what he was going to do, but they knew they wanted someone. The Jews taught the world what it means to worship the one true God. They practiced godly morality more than most other cultures, and they encouraged the serious study of Scripture. By the beginning of the first century A.D., Jews lived in many of the major cities of the Roman Empire, and the Jews' places of worship, the synagogues, gave Christian evangelists a starting point in telling the good news of Jesus, as we see time and again in the book of Acts. At the same time, the power of Rome grew in the century before Christ to cover the Mediterranean world and beyond. After the chaos and strife following the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., his adopted son Augustus became emperor and began what today we call the Roman Empire. The rule of Augustus brought what historians call the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, during which subjugated nations avoided challenges to Roman authority. Augustus encouraged trade among the nations, he reorganized the administration of the Roman government and ordered regular enrollments or censuses. One of these was the census that called Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The Roman Empire made possible peaceful and widespread travel. It showed that people from many lands and backgrounds could live together in peace under one system. These facts made going into all the world for the cause of Christ easier in the coming decades. The political power of the day belonged to Rome, but the culture of the Mediterranean world was definitely Greek. Rome did not try to suppress Greek language and culture, but instead used them and built on them. Greek influence was evident in architecture, education, literature, drama, and art. One lasting effect of Alexander's empire was the spread of a unified Greek language. As Alexander built his army with soldiers from the various city-states on the Greek peninsula, their different dialects gave way to a new form of Greek, described as Koine, or Common Greek. It was not common in the sense of being gutter-talk, but common in the sense of being shared in common by many people. It was this form of the Greek language that spread as the language of trade and international communication in the Mediterranean world. As one indication of the spread and influence of Koine Greek, when Paul wrote a letter to Christians in Rome, where the main language was Latin, he wrote it in Greek. As Jews lived in various cities of the Roman Empire, the people around them had no interest in learning Hebrew or Aramaic, so the Jews had to learn Greek in order to get along. In a few years, when Christians collected the documents that made up the New Testament into one book, they were written not in Latin or Hebrew, but Greek. One characteristic of Koine Greek is the exact expression of ideas. This is important when the ideas you want to express tell someone how to be saved eternally. Greek culture was also steeped in philosophical thought, such as the presentation of systematic, logical truth, as Paul used in his letters. Greek thought also emphasized the importance of the individual. But as these three cultures, Jewish, Greek, and Roman, contributed to making the world ready for the Messiah and the spread of the good news about Him, the spiritual climate of the world revealed the great need for a Savior. Jewish religion had become legalistic. One Jewish sect, the Sadducees, had no faith in the life to come. Jewish expectations for the Messiah were mistaken. Greek wisdom was mistaken on many points and was not based on faith in the one true God. Roman power stood on feet of clay. The man that Rome allowed to be king over Israel, Herod the Great, was paranoid and put several of his family members to death when he feared that they were a threat to his power. Thus, his action against the babies in Bethlehem fit his pattern. A few years after Herod's death, Rome began to rule Judea directly by a procurator or governor. One of these was Pontius Pilate, who was governor from 26 to 36 A.D., Historians have described him as inflexible, conceited, and corrupt. He used excessive force to dispel a crowd in Samaria in 36 A.D. and was removed from his office. It was this Pontius Pilate who heard the case against Jesus of Nazareth. Ironically, although these three cultures helped to prepare the world for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time, these cultures became Christianities. Bitterest enemies. Many prominent Jewish leaders saw the teaching about Jesus as heresy. Greek philosophers regarded it as nonsense. Roman authorities saw the Christian movement as a threat to their power and persecuted Christians in many times and places in the first century. The world indeed needed a Savior. The window of the fullness of time would close within a few years of Jesus' ministry. The Jews finally did rebel against Rome in 66 AD, but were overwhelmingly defeated. The Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, never to be rebuilt. As time went on, emperors of the Roman Empire were increasingly corrupt, immoral, and unstable as the empire never developed a satisfactory and peaceful process of succession following the death of an emperor. Greek language and thought became less and less significant and were only rediscovered in the Middle Ages. Even the individuals involved in the fullness of time were significant. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was only one descendant of the many descendants of Levi, among the 24 courses or groups of those who ministered at the temple. His work at the temple would have been rare for him, with so many descendants of Levi in Israel at the time, and perhaps it was the one time in his life that he was serving in the temple when he received the angelic vision. Most of all, God needed a Mary, a handmaiden of the Lord, who, when told of what was going to happen to her, didn't say, Oh no, or, how can I get out of this, or why me? But replied to the angel, may it be done to me according to your word. And so Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, not because an angel told them to, or because of an instruction from the Jewish leadership, but because a pagan Roman emperor ordered a census to be taken. There in Bethlehem, in the most unlikely circumstances for a royal birth, was born the child who was God's unique son, in physical terms a descendant of the royal line of David, a child born to be king. As all the amazing circumstances came together, they fulfilled the prophecy of Micah 5, 2-5, through which reads, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. I think one particular song that we sing at this time of year captures well this amazing coming together of people, events, and influences. In 1865, American minister Phillips Brooks visited the Bible lands, he rode from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on horseback, and on Christmas Eve, he was in the little town of Bethlehem soaking in the reality of what had happened there over 18 centuries earlier. Two years after returning home, he wrote these words that were eventually set to music. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie! Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I'm Ray Knotgrass. Thanks for exploring history with me today, and Merry Christmas. This has been Exploring History with Ray Knotgrass, a production of Knotgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.